Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is the CEO and a fifth generation owner of Omaha Steaks, Todd Simon. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Todd Simon is a fifth generation owner of the Omaha Steaks Group of Companies, currently serving as chairman and chief executive officer of Omaha Steaks. Simon joined Omaha Steaks more than 30 years ago after graduating from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Omaha Steaks and the Simon family have a strong commitment to community leadership and philanthropy, and Todd Simon has been involved in shaping his family's leadership in supporting the arts, as well as social and human services agencies and programs. In 2017, he was the recipient of the Humanities Nebraska SOA Award, which is presented annually to an individual who has made a significant contribution to public understanding of the arts and humanities in Nebraska. Along with his wife, Betiana, Todd Simon was named a 2013 Humanitarian of the Year by Inclusive Communities. Todd Simon, welcome to Lives. Great to be here, Stuart. You are part of a pedigreed, historic family legacy with Omaha Steaks. Would you mind giving, as it were, a brief history of Omaha Steaks? Sure. So Omaha Steaks was started by my great-great-grandfather in 1917. Uh, The family legend is that he and his son uh, came from Riga, Latvia. Um, I actually went to Ellis Island on our our 100th year anniversary and kind of, you know, retraced the steps, found their name on the wall and on the manifest of the ship. They arrived in America in the late 1800s. They established um, some sort of a beachhead in on, on the East Coast. And then in the early 1900s, about 1910, they headed uh, west on the train. And like I said the family lore has that they, that they got off where it looked like home. Um, and so uh, they, were, they were butchers back in the old country. And they got off in Omaha and they started a, a small family butcher operation uh, in downtown Omaha. They moved into their uh, first building, which was a carpentry shop called the table supply company and rather than spend the money to buy a whole new sign they slid the words apart and named it the table supply meat company and that's what omaha steaks was known known as uh, up until 1965 when we officially changed our name to omaha steaks um in the 50s my grandfather started to get we were serving um steaks on the passenger trains that were provisioning uh passing through omaha omaha was a popular stop and um my grandfather started to get cables from people who'd been on the train uh, who enjoyed the steaks and wanted to have some shipped to them. So he figured out how to literally cut steaks, wrap them in wax paper, put them in in wax line boxes with water, ice, and ship them on the train, you know, to his customers and, you know, started to get some orders that way. And then later over the phone, when my dad graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1959 with a degree in philosophy which of course made him uniquely suited to start a mail order steak company. Um, he sort of had to find his place in the business with his younger brother, uh, Stephen, who was doing mostly city sales and the food service. And my, uh, his older brother, Alan, who was sort of being groomed to be the 
the plant manager, he had to find his place in the business. So he asked my grandfather if he could try to maybe make this steak by mail thing work and started, started in earnest figuring that out. And, um, and started, we started to sell, uh, Omaha Steaks by Table Supply Meat Company or Genuine Omaha Steaks from Table Supply Meat Company was how we went to market in, in, in ads that we placed in the New Yorker magazine, the New York Times. And uh, we started to get phone calls and, and, uh, and sort of the rest, yada, 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 100 years later is history. And so, you know, today we're the largest direct-to-consumer uh, seller of steaks and gourmet food in the country. And we, have, we think we have the best-known brand of beef in America. Do you have a sense of any connection with, as it were, the, the homeland? I don't. I mean, you know, I'm a fifth generation Nebraskan now. I didn't grow up you know, knowing any of the people from Latvia. and We didn't really talk about uh, Latvia. I have, I have not been to Latvia, so, so not really. But I think that, you know, it, it really is a great American dream story. And it's a story that really, you know, all, you know along the way, so much had to be learned. And, you know, I, I had the... Um, really the pleasure and the honor of working side by side with my dad for 30 years. And, um, you know, that was, uh, I don't think a lot of people get that, you know, and that was really interesting. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from my cousins and my uncles. And, um, and, you know, one of the things my dad did was he didn't know anything about the direct marketing business. He knew very little about fulfillment and shipping and he kind of had to learn all that. And so, you know, he found great mentors really all over the country people that he could, that he could visit, that he could, some of them he ended up consulting with, some of them, you know, we paid to do things. Some of them were just out of the goodness of their hearts, wanting to see people succeed in the business. And, and it, that really taught me a lot about how, you know, it takes a team. Um, and if you don't have the team, you got to go find the team in order to move things along and keep things for progressing, particularly as you're trying to build really an entirely new category. I'm sorry that you've had your own losses in your family. I, I want to acknowledge that and say I regret that and my sympathies. It would feel even potentially sadder in some ways because you do have such a long pedigree and this business has passed from generation to generation. I wonder what it means to you, both on the opportunity side but also perhaps the constraining side, being part of a generation where it's expected that the business passes down from one generation to the next and, and what that means. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, you, and you're right, you know, that's, you know, you know, there were three brothers in the fourth generation. They're all gone, including my dad. And, uh, and there were seven siblings in the, or cousins in the fifth generation of which two of us were in the business. And my cousin, Bruce, who, who uh, passed away in, in 2021. So, you know, we're, you know, now I'm here, um, you know, carrying on the family legacy. And I think the thing that I'm most uh, thankful for and, and sort of most appreciative of is that um, throughout uh, the generations of the business and now to the current leadership of the business, um, there's always been some thought put into succession planning um, and some thought put into how to bring the next generation on and some thought into how to make sure we have a super strong, you know, professional management team that isn't family. You know, when I came into the business, um, you know, my dad and my uncles were, they were very insistent that I sort of go into some sort of a training program in the business that they just, just didn't want to, you know, push someone aside and stick Todd in there. And they didn't think that would be successful. Now the business was a lot bigger when I came into the business in 1986 
than it was when my cousin Bruce came into the business in 1979. Things had grown and the need for, for thinking and being thoughtful about that was, you know, what had changed. And then Bruce and I started to talk about in, in 2018, 2019, you know, that, you know, we're now in our, he's was going into going to be 60. I was, you know, I was, I was in my fifties and we were thinking, you know, well, Hey, we meant, you know, we're probably not going to be here forever. We're not sure what's going to be happening with the next generation. You know, we better be thinking about what leadership in the business looks like. And so we started to, to make some of those changes and started to really think about, about, you know, what a hyper-professional management team really looks like. Now that's not taking anything away from any of the hyper-professional managers we've had in the business for, for a long time. Because when I came into the business in 86, we had something like 13 non-family directors in the business, you know, and so, cause there's only, you know, there's only so much one individual or a couple individuals can do. We have, you know, close to 2000 full-time employees today. So in order to have a team of that size, you know, you need really strong management. Did you feel when you were raised that it was inevitable that you would be a, a part of the business? And did you think, and do you think it's inevitable that your own children or members of your extended family would continue in the business? Or did you always think, you know, at some point it has to end. It, it can't be a generational business. I, I, it's actually, I don't think there's a, there's a binary choice there. Um, I do sort of feel like I was groomed for the business, although my my dad never really put my, very much pressure on me. I, you know, we t- always talked about the business a lot. I used to go to the office with my dad on Saturdays when I was growing up because I was with my dad and he wanted to go to the office. And so, you know, that's where we went. And when I got out of college, um, you know, it was sort of like, well, what are you going to do now? Um, and I said, well, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try this thing and see if I like it. If I don't, I'll go to grad school or do something different. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of stuck for me. I don't think there's, I don't think there's been much grooming of the next, of the sixth generation. Um, and, uh, and I think that's fine. Again, it's like, uh, I don't know where some of the big, you know, dynastic type family businesses are today, but you know, when you, when you start to get now, you know, 130 years from the founder, you know, there's, there's not that same level of connection that there was, you know, when you were 20 years from the founder. I do want to talk about some of the current pressures that you've had to face and maybe looking ahead. But before we get there, I just sort of want to jump back a little bit to how the business was being run in the 80s and and how you've seen it changed over these decades. The biggest change, you know, from the 80s to the 90s was the internet. And, you know, that in a lot of ways, you know, when it first started to happen, you know, it seemed it was kind of gradual. You know, we were we were lucky that we got to experiment with the internet very very early on. There used to be a service called CompuServe. Some of the old people listening to this might remember it. Um, we had put our catalog online on CompuServe in like 1992 or something, and we did like 130,000 in sales that year. And so I thought, you know, I thought this was a media choice, right? It was kind of like buying a magazine ad, and it turned out that it's it was it was really a whole new channel. Um, but it took us a while to realize that, you know, we were one of the first, um, we were one of the first uh, merchants on AOL. We used to fight with AOL because we wanted to be on that home screen, you know, the who's got mail home screen. And every day the the merchants were were competing for that. They finally realized they could charge for that. And so, you know, then they'd say first they charge 5,000 and then 10,000, then $50,000 if you wanted to be on the, on the AOL home screen. You know, that really changed, you know, the, the way we went to market in a different way. The great thing about it was that we already had all the back end infrastructure to support that. So 
for us, it was just a new front end way to reach our customers and to be where our customers uh, wanted us to be. Um, but that was, you know, that, you know, has really been obviously transformative. And, you know, the fact that first you could shop on your computer and now you can shop in the palm of your hand from anywhere, um, you know, has really been a, been a game changer for us and so many other merchants. So Stakes is in the name, but Omaha Stakes as a um, group of companies has so many more services and products than Stakes. When was it that there was this sort of an intentional expansion of the kind of food that was offered to the market? So I think we had, there were two different sort of parallel expansions that were kind of happening at the same time. The first one was just expansion out of our direct mail footprint and into other ways to reach consumers. So there was expansion, obviously, out of direct mail to internet. We were one of the first companies to have a toll-free 800 number. Uh, we, you know, started to expand our media presence and in, in being in, you know, broader group of publications. We opened up, started to open retail stores in 1976. We had a B2B, a business-to-business -business, uh, sales area where we were selling gifts and incentives to corporate customers. And then, of course, we had our legacy food service business. So, you know, really a, you know, a multi-channel, omni-channel uh, marketer and sort of growing, you know, along those various paths and some, some being more important than others at different times. And then at the same time that was happening, we were also starting to expand our product footprint. And I think, um, you know, this, it happened almost immediately when we started to ship steaks around the country that first of all, once we figured somebody, I mean, think about what a head exploding idea it would have been in 1959 to get a package of frozen meat, you know, in the mail, uh, people weren't buying very much stuff through the mail period, you know, much less frozen steaks. So anybody who was buying those steaks through the mail was already has given us a tremendous amount of trust. And, and so now they've trust us and we can sell them other things. And so, you know, first it was the adjacent things that were directly related to steak, like lobster tails or chicken breasts or chicken cordon bleu or some dessert items some caviar. I mean, we, we experimented with a lot of different things uh, uh, over the years, but, you know, they were very kind of center of the plate focused. And then in the 80s, we started to get more uh, the, the total plate. So we started to add things like potatoes and green beans and Brussels sprouts. And, and then we started to expand our proteins. So, you know, and, and, and through, I guess throughout this whole process, we're, we were expanding the steak business. So we started out selling New York strip steaks and filet mignons. And then, you know, of course, we added ribeyes and and top sirloin steaks and, you know, different specialty cuts of steaks and burgers. And, you know, and so, you know, all of that was sort of happened, you know, kind of along the way. One of the things that we probably didn't get really good at until, well, probably in, just really in the last 10 years, but we start, we've, we've evol evolved, is we became much better merchandisers. We brought people onto the team who really understood merchandising um, as a discipline, you know, before we were kind of like, well, we sell a lot of steaks and they're the mostly what we sell and we don't have to worry that much about what, you know, the other things are and we can take some chances here and there. And we, you know, we had, we didn't have a very, very strict discipline around rationalizing our inventory and our product line. Um, but we've gotten much better than lately. And we have a terrific team that is devoted full time to that now. And, and it's really, it's really um, expanded how we think about it and, and, and allowed us to really be there for our customers with something new, something that's gonna solve a problem and something's gonna be delicious and high quality and stand for everything that we stand for.
I know that this is a trite idea, this idea of a business building trust with its customers, but you are literally shipping something that someone is going to put in their mouths. I'm curious about how the business is intentional at nurturing trust. Well, the foundation for that trust piece um, was something that my dad put in place when he started to scale the direct-to-consumer business, and that was a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And again, this head-exploding idea of shipping stakes through the mail, you know, if so, how's somebody gonna, how are you going to get over somebody saying, well, what if they're not perfect? What if, what if they're thought out? What if they're whatever? And so he just said, 100% satisfaction, no questions asked. You must be thrilled, guarantee. If you don't believe these are the best stakes of your life, we'll give you your money back. That has remained part of our culture, and it's super foundational because not only does it make us accountable to our customers, but it makes us accountable internally to each other. Because if we're not delivering an amazing experience, both from a product perspective and a service perspective to our customers, our customers have an unlimited ability to put the product back to us. And so it keeps us with, you know, all the, everybody on the team on the same page because, and that's everybody who's somebody who's inspecting, uh, you know, raw material when it comes in, somebody who's cutting steaks or doing packaging, you know, they know that, you know, and we have signs all over our plant that say the customer is the next inspector. And it used to say it on all of our boxes too, and probably still does some of our food service boxes. Um, it says that when they close the box, it says the customer, we're constantly reminding people. So if you're going to put a steak, you know, in, in, in a package that doesn't look amazing, our customer has the, has the ability to give that back to us. You know, because we've, we've put that out to our customers, we hold ourselves accountable internally. And that's been kind of a magic thing for us. I'm curious how the pandemic impacted the business and, and how you adapted to that. And if perhaps, horrible as it is to think about, if there are some silver linings to perhaps what you experienced and learned. Yeah, so the pandemic, in, interestingly, you know, back to the point of trust. I mean, I, we are, you know, the family and our entire team, extremely humbled by the fact that so many households in America turn to us and trusted us to supply them with great protein and great meals when they couldn't go out or when the shelves at the stores were empty or when they were thinking, you know what, I just need a freezer full just in case. And, um, and so what happened was people turned to us very quickly uh, and we had to scale the business up into March, beginning of April of 2020, um, kind of like we do every year when it comes to the holiday season. So we're already a seasonal business where we see a big surge in business, you know, in, in Q4. So the great thing about uh, where we were at that moment was we already knew how, we knew how to scale. It wasn't like this was, because we did it, we've done it every year for a hundred years. So we knew exactly what to do. We just weren't, we weren't prepared because normally we'll have, you know, we spent, we start planning for holiday of, you know, the holiday next year in January, right, of the current year. But we do know how to do it. And we were able to do it. We were able to get our whole team. And we basically kind of went rolled, you know, 24-7. And we figured out a way to, to, to scale up very quickly to just put in place what we would normally put in place, but do it 
extremely quickly. And that meant turning on our second distribution center. That meant ramping up inventory. That meant, um, you know, uh, making sure that we had enough um, uh, wheels on the road to um, to ship product. You know, every all of that had to happen. And we had to do it at, at a time when we needed to keep our team safe, uh, where we had to put in place social distancing. Um, we moved to remote workforce. And, um, you know, it was it was extremely stressful, but exciting. And it turned out to be, you know, a pretty good thing for our business. I mean, we were, we not only did we, did we, you know, sell a lot, but we were able to obviously keep a lot of people working and we were able to help so many homes in America, um, have great uh, food and great experiences during this really difficult time. And we heard a lot of stories about people who were cooking more at home and teaching their kids how to cook and and cooking as a family. And I was posting pictures every day on my Instagram of what we were cooking for dinner. And it was just, it, you know, it, 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 you know, in the middle of this huge storm and a lot of uncertainty, it was, it was great, at least for m- my mental health. And I think the health of our team to know that we were doing a lot to help people at that moment. All of which I think speaks to your business doesn't necessarily discount the challenges, but all of a sudden I think there was this huge focus on being at home while at the same time needing food, which was part of this essential service that was still ongoing. Yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, one thing that I, one point I want to make is that at Omaha Steaks, we acknowledge then and we acknowledge now that the, that the team of essential workers who came in to produce steaks, to ship steaks, um, those were like the real heroes in our in our business. I mean, they were that was it, it was amazing. And the people who supported them in social distancing and safety, you know, we put in place a employee health clinic, vaccinations, testing, all of that, you know, had to happen in order to keep the business running. So it was really a, really an amazing team effort. And yes, to the point of, you know, we're we're in the business of of selling gourmet food that people eat at home. And for us, the family dinner is like the icon, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the archetype that we're, that we're striving for every day to be part of that, to be, to be, to make that better, to, you know, help people uh, achieve success there. And so, um, yeah, that was, certainly was that, that moment in time, you know, that year was, um, was definitely a time where people, I think, discovered and rediscovered the joy of cooking at home and cooking with their family and spending a lot of time outside. If you could do that grilling, um, you know, gathered on the patio instead of inside, you know, we always had to, we had to be in the air outside in the air. And so, you know, that was all very, that was all very positive. How are you thinking about the challenges of the future? And so by that, I specifically mean the potential trends around social behaviors and norms to do with food and otherwise, and how we gather, for example, and also more challenging long-term but systemic issues for the planet. How do we sustain the planet while at the same time managing our needs as people around food and agriculture and so on and so forth? So I'm curious how you're thinking about those challenges. You know, one of the things that that's happened over the last couple of years is that people have discovered food delivery more broadly. And um, we think overall that's a good trend for our business. Um, we also think that people have stepped up their expectations around convenience and around speed. Um, so those are things that those are challenges that we're innovating to try to achieve. Um, for instance, using our network of 50 retail stores around the country as both perhaps mini delivery 
uh, hubs and also, you know, pickup locations, um, you know, which you've seen so many, so many uh, companies move to. Um, the fact that people are buying, you know, meal kits and other kinds of things now through the mail, you know, or, you know, at distance or online, um, you know, I think just opens up the fact that more of the population is open to food delivery and we feel like that's a good trend for us. You know, we're also seeing that there are um, the younger generations, meaning people younger than me or you, um, seem to value uh, experiences more than stuff um, in a lot of ways. And food and cooking and grilling and recipes and and creation and the creativity around that, and of course we've seen it in the media with all the different shows about cooking and baking and everything. Um, you know, these are the kinds of experiences that you can have together. Um, that you can share inside and outside. And so, you know, we feel like, again, that is a great trend for our businesses and our business and businesses like ours. So, you know, we feel very positive about all of that. And, um, you know, we also feel like we have a responsibility. We've got, you know, you talked a little bit about about philanthropy, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it. But one of the things that um, we're, we're, we're uh, doing as a company is embracing a few different, you know, sort of philanthropic pillars, you know, continuing to support the community through the arts and human services, but also um, food security and insecurity. So that's been a big, um, a big focus of ours. We've, we've done a lot with uh, hurricane relief and disaster relief, making sure people have good meals. Uh, we've donated protein to food banks. And an interesting factoid is that the amount of protein, fresh and frozen protein that comes through food banks is actually pretty small because it's higher value stuff and they always don't always have the facilities to keep it. And so there's an opportunity for us to really be helpful there because we know how important protein is to the human diet. Um, but dovetailing into a food security and insecurity is food waste. You know, there's a lot of conversation about the environmental impact of different forms of agriculture, you know, and what it really, you know, what it means and how to, how to curb that and how to, you know, make the planet a better place. But we waste in America about 30% of our food. It's just so, so think about, think about how the environmental impacts of everything that, everything there would be reduced if there was less waste. At Omaha Steaks, uh, one of our answers to uh, food waste is portion control. So everything that we sell is a portion that can be, that can be eaten, that is easily prepared, that either, you know, it's either a steak that you unwrap and you cook or a burger that you unwrap and you grill, or it's a, or it might be a pre-prepared meal, or it could be a pre-prepared entree. And so essentially everything that every, all the food that we sell can be eaten and it's a single portion and it's kind of, you clean your plate and it's gone. Um, and so, um, you know, that's one of the ways that we think we're, we're, we're having an impact. Um, you know, we're also very concerned with, um, with, you know, like, for instance, we use recycled material and much of our packaging, and we, we, we do a, a very good job of, even in our production process, you know, because when we cut steaks, they'll be, they'll be fat, and they'll be, you know, there'll be stuff that gets trimmed off of the steak. Some of it's edible, some of it's inedible, some of it, we, some of it, a lot of our trimmings go into making our delicious burgers, which are mostly ground steak trimming, so that makes them fabulous. But everything else gets, you know, it, it, it will, it, it moves into other parts of the process and gets reused and remanufactured. So, you know, overall, you know, at least our part of the industry is, is pretty efficient at that. Um, you know, we can always get better, but you know, we're, we're, we feel like we're making pretty good progress there. 
mentioned having thousands of employees, you have the nominal responsibility as head of the company for the culture of the company. I'm not suggesting that because you're at the head of the company that therefore you say what the culture is. But you do model it to some degree and you model the values that you want the culture to live by. I'm curious just about how you do go about cultivating, nurturing the kind of culture you want at Omaha Steaks. I think it starts with, as you as you described, kind of the example that we set. In a lot of ways, it goes back to that guarantee, right? We know that we, we're, we're going to deliver an exceptional experience that's going to bring people together. And if we don't do that well, we're going to give our customers their money back. So the whole company sort of coalesces around that idea of quality. And that quality then translates into a quality product, quality service, and a quality culture, a quality work environment. One of the things that, you know, I talked about succession planning before, as we've cultivated the next generation of leaders, and we now have our first non-family president and COO, um, his name's Nate, and Nate and his team, uh, they, in a lot of ways, kind of own the distribution of the culture across the business. So, you know, we want to make sure that that the culture is not just embodied in a single individual, but is lived by the leadership team and then pushed through the organization through that leadership team. And so we've actually taken to, you know, when we have, um, you know, uh, company like awards meetings and those kinds of things that instead of them being led by me or even Nate, they're, they're being led by our vice presidents and our director teams uh, who are, and the way that, the way that people are identified uh, for these awards and recognition within the company is actually from a bottom-up process. So anybody in any part of the business can nominate one of their coworkers, and then that goes through a process. So we really want we want um, uh, the team, the individual team, to be looking for the value, how our values are expressed among different team members, and elevating them as examples within the organization. And that's been pretty successful. And and you know, uh, back to what we learned from the pandemic. One of the things we learned from the pandemic is that we can do remote meetings, we can videotape things, we can distribute messages more broadly. And so using all that technology to make sure that when we do an awards meeting, as an example, we have it so that we can distribute it later, um, you know, and that everyone can see it. People can participate live, even if they're not in the same building. You know, all of that, all all of that, uh, that use of technology has been really um, great in helping to spread uh, culture throughout our organization and others, I'm sure. I think the concept of leadership can be defined in many ways, and it can certainly be performed in many ways. How do you define leadership? How do you behave as a leader? Personally, I would say that I am a, um, my personal style is, is being more of a consensus builder. I am, uh, I'm not impulsive. I tend to be a little bit more deliberate. Sometimes people think I go a little, little I'm a little slow uh, in decision making, but I'd rather, I'd rather kind of, you know, be deliberate, make a good decision and get good input and buy-in than be, you know, impulsive and maybe have to fix something later. And so that's, you know, I think that's a, that's a style thing. Um, the confidence that I have in myself as a leader comes from 35 years of experience in the business. Um, so there are some things that I bring to the decision-making process as sort of one of the, you know, now there's probably, oh, I don't know, there's probably 20 people in the organization, maybe 50 people in the organization who've been there, you know, 
30 years or longer, 25 years or, lo or longer. And so, you know, it's good to be able to reflect on things that have happened in the past, um, not for the purpose of saying we did that before, I don't want to do it again, but just for the purpose of saying we've been in a situation like this, how could we learn from what happened before and bring that forward into the, you know, into this moment in a way that's, uh, that's intentional and in a way that's respectful um, without necessarily saying just because it didn't work before, it doesn't mean it can't work now. Um, or, or you know, as an example. So um, I like consensus. I like leaders who, who, um, who take a service approach, who really want to help their, their team learn. They want to be in advisors. And, you know, of course, there's always times where you have to break a tie or you have to make a tough decision or where the team's looking to you to say, you know, in my case, it's like, hey, Todd, your name's on the chimney. This is your call. You know, and then I have to make it. Is there something from your predecessors or your mentors, a lesson, a piece of wisdom that you carry with you as you look at your professional and personal life? Yeah, there is there is a lot. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, one of the things that my dad taught me was that um, that marketing in many ways is a science and there's lots of art to it but it has underpinnings in science and mathematics and that you really have to understand the economics of a proposition that you're making. And you really have to think through, think those through and, and, and not just at, you know, first, second, even third order dynamics, you know, what, where, where's this customer going to be after their third purchase, after their fourth purchase, how do we get them there? What's the, what's the path through, you know, and, and, you know, over the years you sort of, you know, you, I think, I think as in a business, you sort of fight entropy, right? You, you know, you're very organized, you're very buttoned up. And then over time, things get a little bit, um, you know, they start to degrade a little bit and then you have to bring things back and, you know, a, a good team will be able to sort of do that and sort of steer the ship um, while they're doing that. Um, I think what's really interesting is that is the different kinds of personalities, particularly in my family that I had to, that I worked with and how they, how, when I saw them in action, how I became came to respect their style, um, and how that style can has a purpose depending on what the situation is. So, you know, my uncle Steve was like the consummate salesman. He just, you know, he had that 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 schmooze, that ability to 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 really get people, you know, make eye contact, firm handshake, you know, uh, uh, and and get them to say yes, you know, get them to say yes to the offer. My uncle Alan, very very deliberate, that you know, checklist kind of guy, you know, uh, you know, his job was to make sure that we were in compliance with all our regulations and that we we're always producing a perfect product for our customers. And so, you know, there's a there's a place for that. Um, my cousin Bruce was a was a great negotiator. He was um, he was a, a quick decision maker, and um, and he was um, he had a certain kind of uh, uh, confidence uh, about his energy that really made you respond to him, and where you know he could keep you guessing. And so all of those you know and all of those personalities that I work with you know got me to a point where I you know I've I've come to realize that there's a place. For all of that, and those are tools that a leader can use to maximize uh, a, a given situation, and in our case, maximize it to the benefit of our customers or our team.
So you're not a neutral figure in all of this, of course. So I'm, I'm wondering what has been your contribution to that secret sauce? You know, it's hard to see it when you're in it. Um, it's hard to see it when you're in it. But I think for me, it's really being able to kind of see the big picture and be willing to be open to input uh, from others who might see that picture differently and being able to have a very constructive dialogue about it. Because I think there's, like I said, there's so many, there's a, I think there's a management author out there uh, named Jack Stack, but I saw him speak at a, at a conference and his, one of the things that always stuck with me was he said, with every pair of hands, you get a free brain. And I think we've really done that uh, at Omaha Steaks. And it's something that I think is really important is that, you know, there's so many great ideas that can come from anybody throughout the organization, and particularly those people who are answering the phones and talking to customers, or they're reading emails, or they're helping pack our coolers, and they're you know they're they're doing this every day, and they're saying, "Why am I doing it like this? This is dumb. There's a better way." And being able to bubble those ideas up, get them through the organization, and and get them operationalized. And I think if uh, it, I think we've done a pretty good job of doing that, and I think any business that can that can that can make that happen, it's super important. Because, you know, how many times you talk to someone on the other end of a phone at your cable company or something, and they just say, our policy is X. You know, I, I, hope, that, I hope that the people on my team know that, you know, when it comes to helping our customers, they can help shape those policies so that they're always optimal. So you didn't say this. So I am making an assumption about you that I'm going to check if it feels recognizable to you. So you've described some of the aptitudes that you have, some of the contributions you make to this big picture of what the business is. But it's also really clear that you are someone who has a personal passion for and an appreciation of art and creativity. And it feels to me as if that is also a part of the skill set, the mindset that you bring, this sort of creative flair, if I can say that. So this is in some ways a segue from that observation to asking you, knowing that you're a huge fan of art, what it is about art that is so appealing to you. Yeah, that's a good observation, Stuart. I think that, um, you know, I've always, I've always uh, viewed myself at Omaha Steaks as like the assistant art director. <laughs> um, and we've got, as you know, we've had some, we have, we have and have had some great art directors over the years. Um, and yeah, I think that, I think that, you know, we're a business that, you know, primarily presents itself to the consumer, um, in pictures and words because our product, um, you, we're, we're actually selling you the end product, right? I'm showing you a picture of a beautiful plate and an amazing cookout and stuff on the grill and a family sitting around a table. But what you get is, is steaks in a box, right? But we're not selling steaks in a box. Right, we're selling that amazing experience that you get when you get those steaks in a box, and um, and so I've always had a keen eye for, you know, good copy, uh, for good photography, um, for and I'm always on the lookout for like when I get mailings or see ads or get emails from companies like like what can we steal, <laughs> what can we borrow, what can we innovate around that that could be particularly effective and and checking what's responsive. So I think that for sure the, the uh, aesthetics in our business are extremely important. And, we, and my dad was able to hire some of the very best 
like copywriting consultants and direct mail consultants over the years. And I had a chance to go visit them and talk with them and learn from them. And, you know, it's, and, and I would say that, you know, marketing is an art. Um, I said before it was science, but it's also an art and that art, um, you know, you, you, you know it when you see it, you know, when it's good, you know, when it's bad. It's funny. Cause I look at catalogs all the time. I, I'm getting a lot lately, probably cause it's holiday season. And I'm wondering who, thought that putting six point type in the body copy was a good idea because I can't read it. And I'm the guy who's probably going to buy from this catalog, you know, not the 18 year old who can read the six point type. <laughs> you have a personal passion for art too. I do. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about those aspects of your sort of personal uh, preferences and, and appeal. Yeah. And I think I'll make the first point I'll make is my interest in art comes from my interest in artists. And so over the years, um, you know, my, my exposure to art was first through meeting artists. I mean, I'm sure I went to lots of museums and, but I didn't, I never bought a piece of art. I never wanted a piece of art in my life until I'd met artists. And then once I began to meet the artists, then I started to engage with them about their work. And then oftentimes I would end up acquiring some work. And, and so that's how it started for me. Now that I've developed an eye and sort of my own personal taste, I um I don't always have to have a long in-depth conversation with the artist although I definitely want to learn about the artist where they're from where they're coming from what their history is what they're trying to say um and you know it's and one one answer from an artist might be all I'm trying to do is put something beautiful that's going to make you feel good when you look at it and some artists might say, I'm trying to elevate this social injustice from 100 years ago and I, that people have forgotten about, and I want people to remember it. Or, you know, and, there's, and there's, you know, of course, all sorts of variations in between. Um, but understanding that um, and then expressing it in a way that is innovative and original is, you know, is something that I really respect. Why was it important for you to have really high-quality art curated around the business spaces? Yeah, that was um that was something that that both my dad and I thought was really important. Interestingly, my my uncle Alan, who was a student of businesses, particularly industrial, he loved to go visit other people's, you know, manufacturing facilities and and I think he saw at somebody's manufacturing facility, this is like 30 years ago, he saw that in the manufacturing facility they had art posters. They couldn't put fine art up there because it was a hostile environment, but they could put posters up. And so they had these, you know, reproductions of like, you know, Chagall's and Picasso's and whatever in, in their manufacturing. And he came back and said, I want to do that at Omaha Steaks. And uh, do you remember there used to be an outfit called Zap Wrap in town? He had all these art, all these posters Zap Wrapped, which were kind of impervious to being splashed by, by hoses or, um, or, you know, steam or water or moisture. And, um, and he had those put up all over our all over inside our plants in our industrial area. So that was just kind of his way of expressing uh, that. And then, you know, we've always thought that having, um, you know, having a great art around was, you know, it emphasizes the quality that we're work environment that we're trying to contribute to. And so, you know, yeah, you've got some motivational messages and some branding messages and some of our beautiful stake photography and all those kinds of things on the walls. But we also have, you know, Jun Kaneko's and, and Chihuly's and, and other local artists, um, you know, spread throughout the space as well.
I just want to segue using that word local uh, and also to point out the very obvious, which is that in the name of the business group is the word Omaha, Omaha Stakes. And that speaks, I think, to a really meaningful, intentional choice about what you think of as community. The city here has had many businesses that have located here, some very substantial companies that choose not to headquarter here anymore. But that's not the case with Omaha Steaks. What is it that makes being a part of this community so important for you as a person, so important for the business? Well, I mean, I think the obvious answer is I grew up here. Um, I did leave here, though, to go to school and came back. And, um, you know, I think that um, I've always said that, you know, Omaha offers an unbelievable quality of life. I mean, if I can get someone to Omaha, if, you know, if we're trying to recruit someone from out of town, if we can just get them to come here and drive around and see what the schools are like and see what the culture is like here, and the culture has just gotten, you know, exponentially better over the last 20 years um, with a particular, you know, with all the new performing spaces and, and, you know, the, you know, the way the Bemis has expanded, the expansion of the Jocelyn, I mean, all the things that are happening, you know, the invention of the Kaneko. I mean, we've just got so much cool stuff here, Slowdown and the Steelhouse is opening, Omaha Performing Arts, the Holland Center. I mean, just, you know, the, you know, the, the, the list is, is endless that we have, we really have kind of the best of everything. Um, and, you know, at, at half the price, Omaha is just so livable that, you know, I, I will, I will, be a cheerleader for Omaha as, as long as I can be. And, you know, I think that, you know, part of it being an authentic brand is that you, um, you stick to your, your roots and, you know, Omaha Steaks is based in Omaha. And it was really funny is a lot of people I meet, Oh, you're, you're the Omaha Steaks guy. Yeah. They're like, they're like, where are you based? I'm like Omaha, you know? And, and that, you know, they're sort of like, yeah, but I guess that's kind of a question you kind of always ask somebody, even though it's right there in the name. So it's not 100% obvious to everyone, but um, but once you've engaged with the business and you've engaged with the family, you know, we're in Omaha, we're committed to Omaha, and and that it's it's a part of our brand. You know, the other thing I would say is that, you know, we're a family business. We like to treat our customers as family, our team as family, and the the community that we're in is pretty close-knit. And that just, like, it kind of feels right. It feels right for our kind of business. Another community, if I may frame it this way, is the Jewish community, which is quite small in, in Omaha. Omaha's not a big town, but it's big enough, and, and there's a Jewish community here. I'm unsure the degree to which your Jewish heritage is a part of how you live your life in this community, and if that has any relationship at all to the business, knowing that, of course, you shared that the family came from Latvia. There's this sort of heritage that comes with that too. You know, the family left... Uh, Europe before World War One, which is, you know, which was lucky, right? Because post-World War One and, of course, in World War II was devastating and, and had the, our family not left then, they probably never would have. Um, you know, I view, uh, you know, the, the Jewish community has been a part of my life, you know, since I was a little kid. I went to, you know, Camp Esther K. Newman, what's now Platte River State Park. I, uh, you know, I grew up at Temple Israel. I, our family helped expand the temple a couple different times over the years. Um, we helped uh, convert the old temple into the uh, Omaha Conservatory of Music, uh, another great project here in town. And, um, and you know, we've seen, and I've been gratified to see my kids kind of embrace 
their Judaism a little bit, um, in particular through the bar and bat mitzvah process, which I think is a great thing and a, a great um, sort of coming of age ritual. And I think that um, every, you know, uh, I saw a great TED talk about coming of age rituals. So I'm glad that we're participating in those in particular. How are you a different person because of your time at Omaha Steaks? What being at Omaha Steaks has done from the time that I, you know, was a little kid and, you know, in, in, you know, um, invested in the business through my dad and through, you know, through his work and seeing him sort of, uh, you know, the challenges that he had in, in building this, in building the original consumer business all the way to, to where I am today. I think the biggest thing that the business has done is given me the opportunity to deal with a huge variety of experiences you know, fundamentally, business is about relationships. And so the, it's the relationships that you build in business, both with your peers, with the people on your team, with your supervisors and subordinates, with um, outside vendors and customers, and all of those dealings put you in situations where you have to solve problems you have to be creative. You have to think on your feet. You have to make mistakes, sometimes really big ones, um, sometimes hopefully not so not so really big ones. But you make mistakes and you just learn. And so it's it's like the huge variety of experience. Like, you know, if I just played baseball, I'd be like a super good baseball player, but I might not be a very good customer service person <laughs> or whatever. Um, no offense to any baseball players out there who have become excellent customer service people. But, um, but I think that, you know, it's just a huge variety of experiences and those experiences can then inform each other and then inform experiences outside uh, of the business. So, you know, you can imagine that, you know, managing my business allows me to be good counsel to someone, say, if I'm on the board of a nonprofit and I'm speaking with someone there and they're looking for how do I deal with this situation or resources towards, you know, an HR situation or a, or a uh, technical problem or, you know, it just, there's just been, it's just a, that huge variety of situations uh, just allows you to just grow and become richer and richer and richer. And I don't know how I could have gotten that much variety if I wasn't put in a position where I kind of had to be a generalist a lot of the time and a specialist some of the time. What have you learned about yourself now over these years of not just business, but just experiencing the human condition? Gosh, Stuart, you're really, you're really making me dig deep here. <laughs> well, you're a deep man. I mean, we... <laughs> um, so, I've learned that um, I like to have fun. I've learned that um, having a great team around you, no matter what you're involved in, is super important. Whether it's being on the board of directors of a not-for-profit or doing a fundraising campaign or running a business, um, you have to have talented, committed people on your team to get things done. Uh, I've learned that um, the most, probably the biggest responsibility I have today is being a parent, a father. And that has, uh, that has me learning. My kids teach me every day how to be patient, how to be encouraging, how to be thoughtful. And so I probably am right now in my life, I, I think it's my kids that are teaching me the most about whatever is next for me. 
My guest today has been the CEO and fifth generation owner of Omaha Steaks, Todd Simon. Todd, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Stuart. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Lives is hosted by me, Stuart Chittenden. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.